Hello everyone and welcome to Ed Talks UK. My name is Lucky Kira and today we are going to be getting an insight into one of our inspirational and thought-provoking speakers who will be delivering a workshop at our first national alias conference in March 2022. I am absolutely delighted to welcome our guest, Ben Kingston Hughes, who is an international keynote speaker, writer and multi-award winning trainer. Welcome, Ben. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Hello. Ben is the Managing Director of Inspire Children and has worked with staff and children across the UK for over 30 years. He has a particular passion for working with those that are disadvantaged and vulnerable and has appeared on television several times working on a variety of projects. His distinctive blend of humour, neuroscience and real-life practical experiences have made his training invaluable for anyone working with children. Ben has also been busy writing his book, A Very Unusual Journey into Play, that is due to be published soon. So Ben, really excited to be talking to you today and I'm going to start by asking you, what is your most memorable childhood memory and why? Right, so you've not started with an easy question. Um, I had quite an interesting childhood. I had a wonderful, joyful childhood. My, my parents were absolutely wonderful, um, but I have ADHD. So as you can imagine, my behaviour was not always the best. So my memories of after school and running around and, you know, those summers that used to go on forever. And that is, is something that, you know, I'll treasure forever. But my memories of school were kind of a, a series of, of misadventures where I used to get into trouble quite a lot. And I know this is an awful one, but the minute you said, what's your most memorable um, experience? I've just been delivering behaviour training. And one of the things we do is we all share examples of our own behaviour. And this is one perhaps I shouldn't have shared. Um, but I had a nemesis when I was a child who was a dinner lady. I had a dinner lady who had it in for me. And um, I mean, there were all sorts of reasons why I was quite a cheeky child. I wasn't I wasn't deliberately mean or or nasty to adults, but I would talk back to adults the way they talked to me. So if they were mean to me, I would I would use their voice back at them, which is not good. And I'll never forget this dinner lady um, was trying to make me eat my dinner. And she said, oh, your eyes are bigger than your belly. And I just looked at her and I went, well, that's more than we can say for you. Now, I know that's a horrible thing to say, and I'm not proud of that at all. But from that moment on, she hated me and she would go out of her way to be deliberately mean. And I'll never forget, it was um, 1976. So for the younger people listening to this, that's the hottest summer on record. And you had to ask the permission of a dinner lady to take your jumper off if it was hot. And so all the other children went up to her and said, Mrs. Rose, can, can I take my jumper off? And she'd say, oh, of course, of course you can, sweetheart. And I went up and it's really hot. And I said, can I take my jumper off, please? Very polite. And she went, no, just straight into my face. Um, and unfortunately, the way my brain works is that I then rebelled, which in this case was me taking all my clothes off and running around the school naked, which then started a naked wave where all the other children thinking that this was a good idea. And it caused so much trouble. Honestly, my parents were called out of work to come and drag me out of school that very same day. My mum got a phone call to say that I'd been indecently exposing myself. I was six years old. I mean, you know, and, and I, I ended up being moved to a different school in the end. And my parents moved to a different area. Now, I don't know if those two things are connected. So when you say childhood memories, I've got lots of wonderful memories. But that one just stuck in my mind because I don't think that's negative behaviour. I don't know about you. I think that's a child 
doing whatever they can to get power back over a world that's disempowering them. And I think sometimes we need to back off a little bit and realise that, you know, children do feel very disempowered and that adults sadly use their power to make you feel small. So um, I will just say that in the conference, I won't be running around naked. That is not part of what I do now. That was a six year old me. I no longer do this. Um, so, yeah, yeah so, um, that will be a bit of a lasting impact if that was to happen. <laughs> it's interesting what you, you what you've just said there, um, because um, you know I, I, I'm a great believer that you know children um, when they do sh- display certain behaviours, it's it's it, it is a way of them communicating. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously we have um, we are we've had this pandemic, and so do you feel there's a, as a result of what this pandemic has thrust upon young children and adults alike, to be honest, that the experiences that they may have had and may not have been exposed to has significantly impacted on their behaviour. And how should, do you think, adults respond to what children are trying to communicate to us? Because it's, it's the example that you've shared you know, it's clear in the way that, I mean, I know you said you you rebelled, but that was a form of communication. So yeah. what should we, if you were to think about a couple of top tips, how, how should we be responding to those behaviours that may be deemed as being negative? It's a really big subject. You've just, I mean, we, we could talk about this for hours and, and I do obviously deliver training on behaviour. But the, the most important thing to me is that you've talked about pandemic. What we're looking at is a time of anxiety. And what we know about the brain is that any child that's experiencing anxiety or fear or anger is much more likely to show what some people would call negative behaviour. In fact, it's almost that they're predisposed towards that behaviour simply because of the way their brain is now set up because of all the negativity. And the problem with that is, is that if other adults upon seeing that behaviour are then mean to those children, so shouting, using punishments or overly, overly using discipline on that child, you're not actually removing the problem. What you're doing is adding to the anxiety and the fear and the anger. So what that's actually doing is making the child's behaviour worse in the long term. But for the child, it can be damaging because we all know that anxiety is toxic. And that's not a metaphor. It's that the biochemicals of anxiety are literally poisonous. Cortisol, one of the stress hormones, if you inject that into rats, that rat's having a really bad day. I mean, please, nobody ever do that because, you know, that's every symptom of depression that you can think of. It's poor appetite, it's digestion goes, it's aggression raises. The the exploration impulse for rats stops when you inject them. They, they, they withdraw into themselves, so they're no longer curious. Now, imagine that as a child who's had an anxious time during the pandemic and then sits in a school classroom, withdrawn, not wanting to find out about stuff, feeling more aggressive, behaviour deteriorating and then another adult seeing that behaviour then shouts at that child are you helping that child with their behaviour of course not you're actually guaranteeing that behaviour is going to be repeated and what our children need if they have anxiety they need to heal it's that simple and it's physically healed the damage to the brain caused by the stresses that they've experienced and the number one thing that we do with our vulnerable children is that we make them feel safe because you've got to do that bit first If that child is still experiencing the anxiety and the stress of their life, they're going to struggle. And actually working with vulnerable children is not it's not really rocket science. And what we try and do is is a simple percentages game. If we can ensure that our children have a higher percentage of positive experiences in their life, they are much more likely to thrive. If, however, that child has an overwhelmingly negative experience of life, 
then that child is much more likely to struggle. And it's up to us to give them the positive experiences. And this is regardless of their behaviour. This is despite the behaviour. Because if you're just looking at that surface behaviour and going, oh, this isn't a very nice child, they're aggressive, they're un unpleasant to us, they don't know how to join in, stuff like that. And then we're then treating them with aggression. Well, what are we teaching those children? We're not giving them an alternative. And I genuinely think that sometimes the best thing we can ever do is see through behaviour to the child underneath. And once you can do that, you realise their behaviour is not aimed at you. It's not personal. It's aimed at the world and the stuff that the world has done to them. And generally, it's adults that have made them feel that way in the first place. So, you know, if we can be a different sort of grown up, then, you know, we can really help children. Um, can I tell you a quick story? Just a really quick one. Um, one of my <laughs> one of my staff, uh, a lovely lady, um, and she wears on some of our sessions um, a skin tight yellow bodysuit. We've not provided that. That's not the uniform. That is just something she's got. And she dresses up as Banana Lady. She wears the, a yellow mask and a yellow cape with this really skin tight yellow suit. And it did strike me that, you know, if you worked in a bank, you couldn't walk into it and go, well, today I'm going to wear this. You'd be laughed at, wouldn't you? It would look ridiculous. But we've had selectively mute children who won't talk to anybody else in the world will talk to her. And these aren't selectively mute children for medical reasons. This is because they've, they've had so much abuse that they've, well, they've pretty much had the voice beaten out of them and they won't talk to grown-ups because grown-ups are terrifying, aren't they? And yet they'll talk to her because she's not like any other grown-ups. She's a giant yellow banana lady. And that makes all the difference in the world to me and to the children that she works with. So I've got a bit sidetracked about that. Yes, you will see changes in behaviour due to COVID. Of course you will, because it's added to the level of anxiety. And we know for a fact that impacts on children's behaviour. And the best thing that we can do ever as adults is to see through the behaviour to the child underneath. And it's really important what you've just said there, because the ability, because the ability to connect with children and to have those connections and really understand and like you say go go beneath the behavior because there's always a reason as to why a child will behave in any particular way yeah. and it is around um, the response that the adults provide that makes uh, either I c either can break them or it can actually make yeah. them and I absolutely resonate with um, what you've just said there because there's been so many experiences through my own teaching career where you could actually clearly see the children that would actually connect to any certain adults and the ones that they really avoided and yeah. the ones and it usually was the ones that were very quickly to label label the behavior and then obviously yeah. consequently take it out on the child <clears throat> where those relationships were not formed and, and obviously consequently the children just did not move on with their learning you know and, there's, and there's you're right it makes the problem worse yeah there is a myth about behavior and i've even had this talk taught to me on behavior training many years ago that you have to always be consistent and by that you mean it means that whatever a child does you treat that in the same way and that every child doing the same thing will be treated in the same way and the truth is that doesn't work because behavior as you've said is communication and if you don't understand the reason why that child is is doing that behavior you can actually reward the very behavior that is that is deemed negative so what you actually need to do is treat every single child differently, work out the reasons behind the behaviour, work out what they're trying to communicate and then help guide that child to a more pro-social way of expressing that. And as I said, I, I was a nightmare as a, as a child, but I'll never forget sitting in a maths lesson as a, as a teenager. And, and you know, and we, we all know, working in early years, that sitting still listening to a grown-up speak is the least effective way of learning why this is the core of our whole education system when all of the evidence says it doesn't work but this maths teacher was droning on so wah, 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 wah. 
And I stood up and I'm not proud of this at all, I promise you. But I stood up and I, I got my asthma inhaler out and I squirted it in the teacher's ear. Who even does that? That's awful behaviour. But he sent me to the head teacher. So that got me out of the lesson. That got me the very reward I wanted because I was so... For me, boredom is is not just a minor thing. For me, it's an, it's just rage. It's, you know, don't ever ask me to do colouring. Honestly, I just lose it. And as a child, that was one of the first things I remember about being non-neurotypical. I didn't know it at the time. But when I looked around the room and saw all the other children colouring and me not able to stay in the lines and getting more and more frustrated and getting just so angry, I'd rip up my paper. I, I, that's what, I, I, when I first felt weird, I think. Um, but yeah, so sending me to the head, sending me out of the lesson, that's exactly what I needed at that point to get me out of the cr crushing boredom that that teacher was, was instilling in me. So, um, yeah. That was really great what you just shared there, Ben. And obviously you've touched on the things that are absolutely important um, for our young children. Um, as you know, our conference is um, going to be all about the curriculum and the things that um, are important for our young children to learn and develop. What do you think are the most crucial things that us as adults can teach and provide for our children so that they have a really positive start to their educational journey? Uh, that's a really brilliant question. And again, hours we could spend talking about this. Um, this is going to sound a bit weird. And so I've already written one book. Um, it's all about play and that's the book that's out soon however I have started on a sequel and it's about a very simple word that is fundamentally missing from children's lives and in particular education and not all children there are still some children who who do get this feeling but there are many children for whom the joy has been taken away and it is that simple word joy and in terms of education it's very easy to dismiss that when you're looking at curriculum, you're looking at maths and literacy, you're, it's very easy to make the focus on them. But I genuinely believe that if a child is not enjoying what they're doing, they are learning less. And actually, you all know this. Everybody listening will have had a favourite teacher or they'll have had a subject that they did better in. And sometimes it wasn't because of your natural inclination towards the subject. It was simply because the teacher gave it a little bit more joy. And you won't believe this, but in um, China, they're trialling robot teachers robot teachers in early years and primary who have got um, screens in their chest so they can point to pictures. I know, isn't it sounding like a weird version of the Teletubbies? It's like some, that's what the Teletubbies were showing us. It's a dystopian future where we've all got screens embedded in our chests and we're being controlled by, anyway, moving on. The point is, those teachers can give you more knowledge than any human teacher can ever give you because they've got the whole bank of Google and the internet and every aspect of knowledge. So it isn't the, that knowledge isn't the important thing. But the one thing that robot teacher can't give children is that joy of learning and that passion for a subject. That's what real teachers can do. And you all remember the teachers that did that because you're, they're the choices you made at GCSE. They're the ones you picked, the teacher that managed to give you some joy. So for me, that's the most important thing. And we know that things like imagination and creativity are not being taught on current, you know, with our current education system as much as they should be. And they're the things that inspire joy. You know, so it's great knowing maths. But if you've got that passion for maths and what it can teach you, that's when you can push it to the next level, isn't it? Einstein solving pretty much the entire universe, changing how we view the universe through maths. 
that wasn't just because he was good at maths. That's because he had the imagination, creativity, but most importantly, the joy to keep going with that. So, yeah, we've got to inspire joy. And I think it's missing from so many children's lives that it's so undervalued, it's so underrated. So my second book is going to be about looking at the neuroscience of joy, looking at the evolutionary biology of this concept and actually saying it's not an optional extra. This is a vital aspect of a child's journey into adulthood. If you're going to get children engaged in, in any form of learning or any form of experience, they've got to enjoy it. You know, yeah. and, and, you know, and a massive part of that is how do we instill that um, that um, enjoyment and that willingness and wantingness to, to engage in anything yeah. um, that clearly is going to then make the children, like you say, happy, feel, you know, feel secure, safe, but ultimately you know, really take a lot from what they are actually doing. And that is a lot yeah. to do with the adults, a lot to do with the oh, adults. Oh, yeah. Joyful so adults, to, you know, yeah. will get children to joyful be more adults. Joyful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it goes back to, you know, really connecting with them, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. So this then, that that does, um, thanks. Thank you, Ben, for sharing um, that notion around joy, because I know that is one of the things that you uh, talk a lot about uh, through yeah. the conversations we've definitely had and, and through your training sessions. And I absolutely agree with what you're saying there. So we know that the experiences and the way that children inter interact with their surroundings and adults has a very uh, huge impact on shaping their brain and uh, development. Could you just enlighten us briefly on your thinking around this very notion of how experiences and context that um, we need to really focus on to really help children's um, brain development in, in, in a positive way? Yeah, again, it's a massive subject, isn't it? And it's something I'm really fascinated about. And I'm learning stuff all the time. I do find the whole neuroscience side of what we do working with children to be incredibly useful because I don't know about you, but I found that people I talk to don't always value the mental health and emotional well-being sides of what we're talking about. It seems to be quite nebulous to some people and a bit abstract, just like joy is actually. And so people don't tend to value it. And I do believe as a society in this country, we don't value mental health, both adult or children, as much as we should. We don't talk about it enough. We certainly don't don't uh, work with people enough on this. And I think it's because it's all a bit, there's still the attitude, isn't there? Oh, just toughen up a bit. But when you look at the neuroscience and you can actually show physical changes to the brain caused by anxiety, caused by mental health issues, and you can see the impact on the brain growth, the brain health, the enriched environments full of love and nurture and play and curiosity, all of those things. If you show them physical structural changes, suddenly it's like a light bulb. It means something more. So in terms of what you're saying, the, the one thing we do know about the brain is that it doesn't grow if left unattended in a dark room like a mushroom. And we know this from experiments in mammals, but also comparative studies of children who've been through extreme deprivation. So brain growth itself is experiential. We also know that 75% of the brain grows after the child is born. So the early years period is the most significant time for the most accelerated brain growth that a child is ever going to have in their life. And it's called experiential brain growth because it is quite literally the experiences that you have of childhood that build the brain to the full size and potential that it needs. And so that's what we do in early years. We're building the brains of children for their entire future. And there is one thing that gives the broadest range of experiences to build that brain in the broadest way possible. And it is simple play. 
children playing from children digging holes to children jumping off trees to children running around disco dancing or children playing with puppets or pretending their teddy bear has got a voice. Those types of play activate huge amounts of the brain, creating vast neural networks that will underpin every aspect of that child's development for the rest of their life. And you do need to bear in mind that all of the structures to do with academic learning, the bit that we do focus on, in, in my mind, slightly too much, those structures aren't built at birth. They're not hardwired. Babies' brains are pretty mushy, which I know sounds insulting, but it is true. They have very sparse connections. You've got to build the fundamental structures for all aspects of higher learning that you're ever going to do. So when the child is jumping off trees and running around going, ah, being a superhero, they're actually building the brain structure they need for everything else they're going to do. And yet that bit of play because it looks so silly and it looks so frivolous is nearly nearly always undervalued and it's the hardest thing about being a play specialist is that everything I do looks silly but actually it's laying the foundations for the brain for the rest of the life of their life because it's the key criteria for healthy brain growth so that to me is the most important thing if we're looking at the neuroscience of of every kind of you know development and you know, and education and academic stuff it starts with building the very structure in the brain you need in the first place and you do that through play yeah, that's no. spot on. And play is the golden word for our young children. And, and yeah. without it, we don't really stand a chance for our little ones because, you know, it, it is through play exactly what they are doing is around hardwiring their brain, building yeah. those connections, making sense of the world. There's just so many benefits. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Ben. It has been an absolute privilege and so interesting listening to you and your insights. I most certainly could listen to you for hours. Uh, and I know that we've had several conversations before where we've um, really unpicked our pedagogy and just talked for hours on end. So for I, for one, I'm going to be really looking forward to your um, workshop uh, at the conference where you're going to be delivering um, a session uh, focusing on the expression of joy and nurture in relation to creating the right environments to support children's communication and language skills. Yeah, that's right. And it's going to cover some stuff that isn't normally on communication language training, some really brand new stuff that's kind of really makes you relook really look at uh, you know again at that fundamental impact of joy but but really looking at how that impacts on children's communication language and the word gap and children with english as an additional language and just how we support those children so yeah i'm looking forward to the to the workshop uh it's going to be and there some brand new such, stuff such a huge focus on communication language yeah, there yeah, always well, has been obviously even more so now so it's really reassuring to hear that you're going to have lots of new exciting things that you're going to be adding well i've just developed a, an entire training course for another local authority so four sessions uh, fulfilling a level three qualification in communication language but i've insisted that that there's another session that actually isn't the stuff that's on the course on the curriculum for the for the communication language course but it's the stuff that we miss the bits about joy yeah. and about play and about actually sitting down and playing with your children and doing the nursery rhymes and the songs and the silly stuff because sometimes that can get missed off in all the technical stuff so we're going to bring in some of that uh, some some lovely games for you to play uh, with your children um, and it should be a really interesting workshop so yeah looking forward to that oh. I'm absolutely confident it will be. Thank you to our listeners. And if you would like to hear uh, more from Ben and uh, our other speakers that we have got lined up, please do go to our HFL webpage to book on. Ben, it's been an absolute great pleasure um, listening to you this morning and just having you here to have the conversation with us. I look forward to seeing you in March, uh, March the 2nd. Thank you, Ben. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.